Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You're listening to Slice of Cheese with Jenny Linford on Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Hello, welcome to A Slice of Cheese, the Food FM radio series that celebrates the world of cheese. I'm Jenny Linford, a food writer and cheese enthusiast, the author of Great British Cheeses. Cheese is a delicious and fascinating food, and we're setting out to explore this remarkable food and share the stories of the people who make, sell and love it. This week, A Slice of Cheese is celebrating creativity in the cheese world. We speak to the pioneering and inventive cheesemaker Martin Gott of St James's Cheese and talk to award-winning cheesemaker David Jowett of Kingstone Dairy and also to Tom Culver of Westcombe Dairy, a long-established cheddar dairy that's looking at new ways to create its cheese. It's a real insight into the imagination and energy in Britain's cheese scene. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. This week on A Slice of Cheese, very happy to have with me a wonderful cheesemaker, Martin Gott of St James's Cheese. Good morning, Martin. Morning, Jenny. Nice to speak to you. Well, it's lovely to have you on this show. And this week, Martin, we're, we're exploring creativity in cheese, which I think is a really sort of interesting area to look at because I often feel that the British cheese scene does have a lot of creative energy to it. And you did come to mind as someone who is a very creative cheesemaker and who sort of pushed lots of boundaries. In fact, I thought we could just start. Tell me the names of all the cheeses that you're producing at the moment, because I've sort of lost track, basically. I think we've, um, over 15 years, we've had so many different iterations and different names of things that even I've lost track of cheeses we've made in the <laughs> past. But um, what are we making now? So St. James is our is obviously what we're known for. That's our long-standing, uh, the longest cheese we've been making. And then we make another wash rind cheese with our goat's milk. Uh, so St. James is wash rind sheep's milk. We make a wash rind goat's cheese called apatha which which was a sort of a result of covid i guess or came back covid we make a hard cheese called crookwheel which is a hard cheese milk cheese uh, a hard goat cheese which we named holbrook we also recently started making some small format lactic goat's cheeses so um, what you think of as a classic goat's cheese style uh, and, and that one goes under the name of ingot um, mm. but of course in between all this we've also had some other development cheeses like lady gray was uh, an ash coated goat's cheese so a larger format that we made uh, and then we're also making halloumi, which we can't call halloumi, so even by its definition, it has to have another name, which we sell under either St. James Fryer, and we've another version of it that we're collaborating with um, Anthony, who used to have Kupros called yes. St. James Anglum. So two different cheeses, but both in the same sort of style of a grilling or frying oh. style cheese. Yeah, and plans for other things, I think, uh, now that we've <laughs> got the bit between our teeth and come to terms with uh, developing new products and taking them to market. We, uh, yeah, we only see... The way forward is to be more creative as we go forward um, and to really enjoy that that creative process. Good. Yes. No work involved at all whatsoever. It's just a doddle, isn't it? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, it's interesting. I think we should explain to the listeners that you did, you know, 
yeah, you you were you know you were sheep farmers and made this one your you know your iconic St James cheese, which you must never stop making, Martin. And then, but then you did expand um, by acquiring a herd of goats, which is partly why there are now more cheeses being made. But I was really interested, Martin, in, in sort of trying to get an insight into how a cheesemaker thinks, you know, sets about making a new cheese. What what are the constraints? Are there practical constraints? Is it to do with equipment? Is it? But is there also a process of experimentation? Because you know, if it's milk, you know, like you hadn't made goat's milk cheese for some time, I think, when you got the goats again, and then when you got the goats, talk talk me through some of those sort of you know reasons or, or things so behind the, that. Yeah, the first thing I think it all you know the beginning has to be necessity, and I think where um, in the past we could sell all our milk as St James cheese, so the necessity to kind of uh, to create more new products when we already had a limited amount of milk available to us. Uh, the necessity wasn't there. So I think there was always an urge to be more creative and to, to make more styles of cheese and to experiment and learn more. But actually, we just we, the milk was already sold before it was made into cheese. So mm. um, so I think the necessity was the, the key part. Um, and obviously, COVID created this necessity that we didn't have customers for all this cheese that we had because of you know the disruption. So we looked at um, Crookwheel was the first sort of new cheese to come out of our dairy. And that was a hard aging sheep cheese. And that was really just about uh, finding a place to put milk whilst we figured out what was going to happen through COVID. Um, so I suppose then you, you look at parameters, obviously constraints were that we were in the middle of a pandemic. So we had to work with the equipment we already had to hand. Um, and so we kind of went through sort of, uh, you know, cupboards and storerooms to find old cheese molds and things that might work and, and basically kind of gathered together bits of equipment that, w- that we could do the job with. And then, of course, that equipment, not having a cheese press meant we had to look at a hard cheese recipe that would be unpressed. So when you take that, there's lots of cheese on the continent. You know, Parmigiano is the one that jumps to mind. And Parmigiano, you know, the hardest sort of, you know, uh, most longest aged cheese in the world is entirely unpressed. So um, you start taking sort of uh, lessons or learning or looking at that as a process and saying, well, how can you make the hardest, densest, longest aged cheese in the world and not use a cheese press? Um, so you look at the mechanics of, well, what do we need to do with the curd to be able to create that? Um, obviously, Parmigiano production facilities are, are perfectly engineered to um, to make that one type of cheese you know so uh, we didn't have that luxury so we had to sort of compromise and find ways that we could fit so um so that was the first thing really is okay take our pointers from those cheeses and if you want to make hard cheese then you've got to get the moisture out during the make and so you look at things that you do to make a soft cheese to keep the moisture in the make and obviously then you're going to take sort of the complete opposite tact Um, and sort of you know and then somewhere in the middle is where you're going to find your compromise so i suppose so is that things like so in in terms of moisture is that to do with working is it the size of the curd then would that that presumably would affect yeah so so the size yeah yeah, size of the curd but also the the ability to cut the curd small so when you come to make a a vat of cheese you know you're gonna you're gonna have a a size in mind of how small you want to cut that curd but obviously the Mm -hmm. firm of the curd uh, will affect your ability to, to cut it small in the first place. So if you look at Parmigiano, it's a very soft, fragile, weak curd. Uh, and they use a, I think it's called a spinola, if I, my memory serves me. It's almost like a giant balloon whisk uh, for Parmigiano. Um, and they, so they're smashing or, or really kind of uh, fragmenting the curd into shards rather than sort of unique pieces. Whereas you take something like Gruyere, um, it's cut with a harp and there'll be, you know, sort of small curd particles, but they'll still have an amount of body. Parmigiano, it's really about almost like smashing and, and really... Uh, yeah, allowing that moisture to be released and those curd particles to give up their, their available moisture. But of course, then when you start smashing curd up, you create all sorts of new issues and problems that if you um, smash the curd too small, you're going to lose a lot of yield if you don't have, you know, capture that in the curd. Um, so there's a way you then got to think about, well, how are we going to manage that? And also those fragmented pieces of curds don't want to necessarily knit or gel together quite correctly um, without adding a bit of, applying a bit of heat to it to sort of expel uh-huh. more moisture from them. So there's a sort of Parmigiano, obviously they cook up to 60 some degrees, Gruyere is less than that. And so there's a kind of process where every every action you take, there's going to be another action yeah. uh, that, that you're going to have to consider. Well, you know, if you do smash it too small and do that, then you're going to need a, you know, a real um, sort of cook temperature to be able to, to really allow those curds to knit properly. Um, and then of course, in the background of all this, you've got an acidity schedule to manage that's uh, you know the rate of acidification of lactic acid bacteria and their part to play on the curd structure and mm-hmm. the uh, the curd structure and and they're, again that how they're going to help you to remove or retain moisture so um so lots of different things and, and yeah you need a you know this is why cheese makers aren't always creative because actually it takes some time well I, I suppose i would say it take years to really develop cheese fully yeah. what we did during covid was try and fast track it and we produced some cheeses that were that were good 
and a few examples that were great, but actually a lot of it was just felt as though it was we were just entering the market with a cheese that was like, okay, this has got some legs, it's interesting, um, but you know there'd be years more development if we want to take those cheese and, and really sort of stand them apart from. from That's an interesting point. Yes, I, can, I hear what you're saying. Yes, and it was St James itself took took time to develop, didn't it? That sort of grew with. Yeah, I think that was experimentation. We, yeah. we we grew our understanding around the cheese, and it's you know people say oh the. the consistency and quality and flavors vary greatly through the season and they do and, and i admit that but um but actually the the quality has just been a sort of a general upward trend and it's over 15 years i think people generally sort of feel that the cheese has improved every every season or every, or every year or every season the, t- the cheese gets a little mm. better better um i guess that's as you learn to do with these these tiny details and, and even affect your facility a little bit you know the rooms that we make in um the way we any small changes we might as we increase production or change our schedule we might need to add ventilation or different heating systems or cooling systems and all that, of course, becomes some part of the, the process. So dairies often, I think, where they specialise in one cheese become this quite sort of, it's almost like an organism that's just geared to make one cheese well, yeah. uh, which is why I think a lot of some cheesemakers can be reluctant to change from what they're doing because you've geared your whole premises around one cheese. How can you suddenly go, well, let's make something different? So um, I think that can be what holds back the, the creation of new cheeses. Um, it's almost like if you perfect, you know, you become so good at one thing. Yes, it doesn't yeah. leave room to to do something different because it's just. Do you about think? I, you know, I sort of was saying I felt there was a creativity in the British cheese scene, and that's something I feel not just about cheese in Britain, but other foods. And I think it was partly it's partly to do with my sense that you know food in Britain didn't have the status it now. It's sort of you know there was a period, um, you know, a few decades ago when it was just not. Very interesting. In fact, when I started writing about it, when I said to people as a food writer, people were like, like what? You know, what do you do? And why do you write about food? And, and then they were all like, oh, you're a restaurant critic. And I was like, no, I'm an enthusiast. And no, I'm a food writer. And, but now there's a sort of, you know, food it seems to enjoy much more sort of interest. But I felt that there wasn't this burden of tradition in the way that in other countries, having lived in Italy and seen, you know, very deep rooted food culture, which I don't think Britain has, I think partly because, you know, being the first country to industrialise because the effect of wars, there was a sort of lots of things were broken. And then, but that did allow for sort of, you know, in the way that when a tree grows in a forest, it sounds a bit corny, but new things come to life because there's space. Do you, do you think, so this is a very long garbling intro to my point is, did you think there was a reset culture in Britain for what you, for your experimentation? I think, I think it, it, it wanes and it's like lots of things in food. It goes through fashions and trends, doesn't it? You know, and I think um, you've, I definitely agree with you. When we started out making there was a sense that um, that the sort of the restraints were off, and you could make you know an artisan sheep's milk cheese in Somerset or in Cumbria, um, and these and there was room and there was space because I think we'd had that um, influx of European cheeses, and the excitement was palpable. People were very mm. excited to be getting uh, you know really high quality Spanish and French cheeses on in in British cheese shops for the first time. Really, um, we passed the point of just getting our uh, you know President Brie, and that was our, our sort of understanding of French cheese. And I would say that the public were definitely. Uh, open-minded to having uh, you know sort of continental style cheeses made here and I think that's where we entered you know that's where I entered the the business I think was that I could respect the traditions of my first job was making cheese with the Kirkham's a very traditional Lancashire cheese um, but actually being able to take those traditions and then do something very different with it mm. was my entry point now I think that things have probably changed a little bit over the last 10 or 15 years and I think that as we've developed lots of variety and lots of um, sort of diversity within the cheese scene there's actually a bit of a hankering for 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 re uh, sort of reinvigorating or, or reimagining our very traditional cheeses which I think is also an interesting take on creativity so in some ways that you could be burdened by tradition you know almost like I think the French may have a bit of an issue with their cheese industry it's very hard to break the mold and do something different but I think where we've got in the UK now three new raw milk Wensdale cheesemakers uh, who are all farm made, which we didn't have, you know, 10 mm-hmm. years ago. It's because of this reimagining of, of these tr- traditional historic types that now uh, people are hankering saying, well, yeah, we like this diversity. We love this innovation. But what about our, our own cultural heritage? And, you know, where, where did we leave that? Or can we, can we bring that back a little bit? And I think that's got, uh, you know, this, it's an interesting way that people are becoming creative and uh, a way for people to innovate is to reimagine versions of cheeses that existed in the past of course it's it's endlessly interesting as well that there's no nobody's got any living memory really of these cheeses or <laughs> anything to compare it to so there's a sort of point where um we might say well we're bound by tradition or burdened by it but actually if nobody has any living memory of what a raw milk Wensidil 
from Yorkshire tasted like, then um, of course you're yes, not bad. You can occupy it. that space, don't <laughs> you? Yeah, 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 you know, it's up to those people to reimagine it. So I think, but I do think tradition can be burdensome. I think when you take that, the course, the, the caveat to that is that if you want to um, start making raw milk Wensleydale in uh, Cumbria, perhaps, you know, you're not a traditional raw milk Wensleydale because you're not from Yorkshire. Um, mm. And that's strange, uh, the burden that comes with it is traditional Somerset cheddar, you know, traditional cheddar from is should be from Somerset. And, uh, you know, somebody starts making it somewhere different or Stilton, that kind of thing, you know, um, yeah. are, we, are we bound? And some of these new cheese varieties, could they have, could they have just appeared uh, more easily or more readily had we not had these geographical sort of imprints in our brain and, and geographic names? So I, I, I'll leave that for people to decide themselves whether it's good or bad. I think there's, there's a mix of both. I think the, the space that's allowed us to develop and create diverse new cheese types uh, from continental influences is, has been great, but I think there's also there's also some value in looking back at tradition and uh, using it to guide our way forward. I mean, ideally, you'd want both. You know, you know, in the perfect world, you'd want these wonderful, you know, like Kirkham's Lancashire. You know, that's a wonderful cheese, and you'd want that to carry on. And the, you know, in Appleby's Cheshire, and and you know, the great cheddar makers in the West Country. But then, what they say, lovely is is a vitality. I mean. I think for me, you know, it's always, is it, is it good? Is it delicious? That's always my starting point. So, um, because there's some, you know, you can see lots of sort of wacky innovation and then some of it you're like, um, well, I am just like, oh, really? I don't, you know, that's just not very good. You know, it's an interesting idea, but I didn't think it works. And But it's funny because I, I, I agree with you and I'd be like, oh, you know, keep, keep these flavours away from cheeses and keep anything that's sort of fruit and then you look at um you know like look at the american cheese scene and you've got mm. rogue river blue which is sort of wrapped in uh wrapped in vine leaves soaked in um you know in a strong sort of grape pear, spirit yes and, and it's yeah. um yeah sorry it's a yeah uh, pear spirit and, and the flavor of that is incredible it's a genuinely interesting innovative product and yet you would go you know if somebody said oh i'm gonna make a cheese i'm gonna wrap it in the yeah, I'm going to wrap it in leaves. People will be like, oh, it's a bit done, isn't it? You know, we're not sort of moved past that. Are we not beyond that? So I think, uh, yeah, I think the the notion that we we have preconceived ideas, you know, we don't have, we've never added any flavours to our cheese. We've never sort of gone down that route. But I suppose in a way, we've also never made really great products by adding things to our cheeses. So um, mm. yeah, the great point, creative people who I'm sure you'll speak to, Johnny Crickmore does a phenomenal sort of truffle Baron Bygod. And I think that willingness to be, open-minded and to um, to put truffles in a in, a, in an amazing uh, raw milk brie is is just brilliant and i think brilliantly confident yeah. to take that track and you go yeah. okay uh, it's a different kind of innovation and um and it totally you know it, it i think but i just think it adds it adds to the interest and if that gets yeah. somebody excited about going in their cheese shop and buying a piece of cheese that they can't get in a supermarket or they can't get elsewhere and, and you know and it's only available for a season then it can only be good can't it really yeah, I agree. So have you enjoyed, so, you know, you list that list of, of the cheeses you're currently making and the fact that, you you know, you need to make, you know, you've got the gates now, you've got to make cheese, you've got to, you know, turn this milk into cheese. Are you in, is that something you're enjoying, Martin? Yeah, I think so. It's, it's that, I think there's always this, this, um, this issue against, like I say, being innovative, but striving for perfection. You know, there, there comes a certain compromise when you make different types of things for the reasons I've said. You can't just, if you make the same thing day in, day out, you can really get to the detail of that one thing, you know. And I think that anything where you start changing and creating new processes and develop, developing time to that, if you're not careful, you compromise. Well, you do compromise somewhere. Um, and, and the concern is always, well, what if we've ended up compromising on the quality of the cheeses we make for, for the, you know, in favour of a variety? Mm. Uh, so I think that creates a whole new set of challenges. But I suppose as a, do I enjoy it? Yeah, I think it's amazing. We we now and again, you know, we can just get together a cheese board, and if everything, you know, not everything, but of the cheeses we're making, if there's, you know, the, the majority of them are tasting great, and you go, that's a real achievement. And I think that that um, it's overwhelming, that's pretty amazing, satisfying. Yeah, to be able to put yeah. five cheese on a board that tastes great is is you know definitely more satisfying than putting one piece of cheese on the board that tastes great so there is a there is a sense that actually yeah if you're doing them well and everything's singing and everything's doing as it should do the compromise the, you know the, the sort of compromise is worth it because you're creating you know much more interesting and more it's more engaging for us as cheesemakers to make these different varieties and learn lots of new skills and, and techniques so yeah i think um although you know it's this thing of mastery of a mastery of a skill isn't it? i guess you know is it are you a master because you take one discipline and master that or do you you uh, take a broader view well it sounds like you you sound very engaged and stimulated which I, and you always seem to be someone to me who you know who sort of loves a challenge so i think yeah, we uh, like this yeah. yes yeah brilliant well listen martin thank you for your time i know how busy you are so that it was it was lovely to have you on the show again take care no, then. thank you very much thanks for speaking to me 
I'm a huge fan of Peter's Yard's crackers, and they go beautifully with cheese. All Peter's Yard's crackers are made in small batches, using quality natural ingredients and their sourdough starter, slowly fermented for 16 hours for award-winning flavour and crunch. Visit petersyard.com forward slash shop, enter the code slice of cheese at the checkout to receive 25% off your first order. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. Before we go on exploring the world of cheese, here's news of another Food FM programme that I think you'd really enjoy. Thank you, Jenny. Well, I'm David, the host of The Drinking Hour here on Food FM. Each week, we explore the wonderful world of wine, spirits and beer, all things that make wonderful pairings with cheese, of course. We hear from those for whom making drinks is a passion. So after your cheese course, how about you join me for a few drinks? You can find The Drinking Hour with David Kermode on your usual podcast platform and at foodfmradio.com. Now it's back to Jenny and a slice of cheese. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. On a slice of cheese this week, we're looking at creativity in the cheese world. I'm very happy to have with me today cheesemaker David Jowett of Kingstone Dairy. Hello, David. Good afternoon, Jenny. So nice of you to take the time. And David, I was really interested in talking to this programme because I, I wanted to start in a way with how we've come to be making cheese. I mean, it's a really interesting mm. question, isn't it, that a cheesemaker has to have access to milk to make cheese. So if you're not a farmer and you're not a farmer uh, yourself, then absolutely. how do you do it? <laughs> well, I think for, firstly, the vast majority of farmhouse or artisanal cheesemakers are farmers or are from a farming part of a milk producing family, a farming family. So um, this kind of situation that I'm in where I'm a, a cheesemaker, a trained cheesemaker with, with no farming or agricultural background whatsoever is, is, is quite an unusual one, really. So our company is in Gloucestershire, in the Gloucestershire Cotswolds, very close to the, the area where, where I grew up, in sort of South Warwickshire, Gloucestershire kind of borders. And it's really my want to make cheese uh, is born from a kind of a love of the land around here. Um, you know, I grew up in the hedgerows and rivers and fields mm-hmm. all around um, here. Um, I trained to be a chef and kind of, you know, fairly quickly, really, uh, three years into into that, realised that that wasn't really um, the direction that I wanted to, to go in and that something more tied to, connected to this area, this land, um, was um, what I wanted to do. And cheese just sort of seemed to be the perfect way to do it. Uh, I worked for Cheese Mongers, Paxton and Whitfield, um, when I was sort of, I guess, 16, 17, 18 to early 20s. Um, and so met cheesemakers uh, local to us and got to spend time with them and thought, you know, actually, yeah, cheese making really might be something to, to, to pursue. Um, so then went on to uh, study at the School of Artisan Food at Welbeck mm-hmm. uh, in uh, 2010, I think. Um, and there we, I spent a year there uh, learning the craft of cheese making, dairy science, um, but also food business and the anthropology of food. Uh, so that's sort of how I, yeah, how I got into making, being a farmhouse cheesemaker yes. without farming. <laughs> yeah, so different. Yeah, so following following an interest really, and and Absolutely. in a very active yeah. way. Yeah, and then yeah. assuming you must yeah. then come to this thing of, I want to make cheese, but how do I get my hands on some mm. milk then? So what what happened next then, David? Yeah, after after graduating from from SAF from the from the School of Artisan Food, um, I interned with uh, people like Meals Yard Dairy, uh, Stitchelton, uh, Berkswell, and also in the US at Jasper Hill. 
um, gathering bits from kind of, well, I, I wanted to see the best cheese businesses in you know, the country and in the world. Yeah. And they were, the, they were the sort of ones that I was drawn to. And I, sort of, I guess I wanted to take bits from those businesses and apply them into what we'd sort of ultimately be doing. I then spent a year making cheese for someone else just in on just the other side of the Cotswolds here, up about 10 miles from where I'm sitting now in, in Broadway, and then uh, set up Kingstone Dairy in uh, 2015. Uh, at that point, we'd sort of found a really great farm producing, uh, producing liquid milk. Uh, there was a facility there to make cheese that wasn't being utilised, um, and we set the business up there. And we moved the business to our current location on Manor Farm in 2019 in order to facilitate um, the growth that, that we were having. Um, and that was via a, an introduction that Jason Hines from Neil's Yard Dairy made. So we're now at Manor Farm in Chedworth in Gloucestershire. Can, that's an interesting point. So two, mm. two dairy farmers that you were able to work with yeah. this way. Yeah. And is that really useful for them? Because, you know, there's a massive pressure on, you know, in fact, we've had cheesemakers like Johnny Crickmore have explained that it was the, the pressure on the milk price that yeah. led him to explore cheese making so for say so for dairy farmers is this model where they're renting a space to a cheesemaker and selling milk to the cheesemaker is that a sort of beneficial one for them absolutely um again it's quite an unusual setup and one I, i'm sure over the next 10 or 20 years will become more commonplace as more freelance cheesemakers i guess you know cheesemakers who aren't uh, farmers themselves sort of you know as there are more of people like people like me i guess because i don't farm but i make a cheese that is a single herd milk cheese. It's 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 paramount that we're on the farm, that we're seeing the the guys milking the cows, we're seeing the land, the cows, how everything's going, having those conversations on a daily basis. Now what we've got with the farm is a relationship where we pay for quality. Mm. Um, so we financially reward the farm for producing great milk. And the better that milk is for cheese making the more that we that we pay for that milk but there's a collar on how how little we'll pay for the milk which is still 10 percent uh, 10 pence per liter above what they would get from the tank buying it otherwise so right. we're always paying a premium for the milk but we will reward in addition for really great milk fascinating i mean it sounds like a very potentially a very sort of fruitful relationship you know for yeah. dairy farmers who you know who, who do take pride in the quality of what they're what that, they're that's it producing. that's it yeah. the, 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 i mean when we when when jason introduced us to manor farm and we looked at what they were doing um you know it's an organic farm using uh, very short horns and british frisians uh, following regenerative agricultural practices and we and then looked at the milk itself and and tasted it and made a bit of cheese with it and thought you know it, this is crazy that this is just going off to be bottled and you know this is world-class um milk but the 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 relationship sort of is built on, on on trust and honesty between us and the farm um the understanding of what we mean by quality for for our cheese and you know the acknowledgement that the better the milk the more delicious the cheese and the more delicious the cheese we more the more cheese we sell and therefore, the more milk we buy. So, talked, yes, I talked to a competent cheese. She was actually a dairy farmer, but so her milk goes to mm. milk because you know they've got that model where yeah, absolutely, they pull their milk. And she and she talked yeah. actually about this how distressing she'd worked in New Zealand and the milk she mm. as a dairy farmer on on a farm there, but the milk had gone off and uh, anonymously. And she said it was just so much more rewarding mm. for her to, mm. to be part of this system where her milk yeah. went to make this wonderful cheese that she was incredibly proud of. And like, so are you, you know, is that something for the, you know, is it nice for the farmer? I mean, I don't want to romanticise it, but it must be a satisfaction uh, for the farmer to, no, yeah, to see the cheese too. Com completely. You know, we, we engage um, in how the cheese is eating, you know, on a weekly basis. If they can't taste it in the cheese, that's, that's meaningless. Um, so we do kind of get together and, and eat our cheese with them. It's a wonderful partnership, then, isn't it? And that brings us on, and I see exploring that theme of creativity, David. And you know, so you're a, you know, you are a relatively sort of new cheesemaker in the world of mm. cheese, and and you've had a wonderful, yeah, you got all these awards at the uh, the Artisan Cheese Awards, and so you've recently, yeah. partly because of the pandemic, you you've actually started producing more. You were making one cheese when you went into the pandemic, unless I got that wrong, and you've come out making more. No, that's Is right. That right. Yeah, yes. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. We um, 
we we produced roll right which which that's that's the cheese we've made for just just coming up to six years now so that's our sort of that's our firstborn describe it briefly um, to us yeah, so it's a it's a soft uh spruce bark bound cheese um so around the outside the cheese is 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 wrapped in this uh, little strip of, of spruce bark. It's actually spruce can be in the layer just below the bark. And that holds the cheese together as it as it ripens and imparts these sort of smoky, woody, kind of meaty flavours to the cheese. Yeah. Um, but it's 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 modelled on a, a very famous French cheese called Mondor or Vacheran de Haute Doube okay. uh, from the east of France, from this sort of Franche-Comté region. So that's what we set out making. And it's it's pretty much the the only cheese we made for five years. And last year, when the pandemic hit, we found ourselves in this situation that we hadn't really considered before, which was that we make a very volatile, soft cheese, which you know needs to be sold quickly. It's ready mm-hmm. to eat, sort of about four to six weeks old. Um, but then it's sort of by the time it gets to two months old, really, we want we want people to have eaten it by that by that yeah. point in time. Um, and with the pandemic, we sort of lost about 80 percent of our business overnight with the closure of food service uh the food service industries so there's all this milk on the farm being shipped off you know to be bottled or made into yogurt or what have you uh some of you know the you know really lovely summer milk as well mm. uh spring summer milk which best speaks um, a cheesemaker yes in <laughs> yes yeah 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 exactly yeah. so um well, we just had to think what what can we do firstly to you know get up and start buying some milk again for the farm, but also for our business how to um, you know make it a bit more robust and resilient and and stronger. And the answer, well, it seemed seemed to be the answer was to make a cheese which we could sit on for longer, we could age mm-hmm. for longer. And which didn't have these kind of pressures to get it gone, you know, to get it out of the door yes. at four weeks yeah. old. Yeah. Uh, it had to be something that was compatible with equipment that we already had. And I didn't really want it to be something that we had to ripen for for too long, for, you know, eight to 12 months. So we sort of came up with the idea of more, a Morbier-style cheese. Uh, so we, um, we started doing that in May last year. And we, so it's a, Morbier is a, a cheese made by the same cheesemakers who make the Vacheran Mondor that oh, Rollwright's so based good. on. Yes. So that sort of, yeah, it sort of ties it all up quite nicely, really. And how, what um, was the longer shelf life Morbier? How, how many months? Mm, yeah, so, so three to four months old. Um, we're sort of just about managing to age the Ashcombe's. The ash ash cream's the name of this cheese. Yeah, yeah. Um, we're just about managing to keep them for um, three months at the moment. Um, a little bit older would be nicer, but it's a, a semi a semi firm sort of quite smooth supple texture with a washed rind and a, a streak of black wood ash running horizontally through the through the cheese, oh, uh, which is tradition cream, for so the. Yes. Uh, yes, nice name. It's, it's, an, in, it's very striking, isn't exactly, it? Exactly. It yeah. is. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And the, coom, the coombs are, it's an area of the farm that our creamery overlooks, a sort of dry, steep-sided valley uh, with ash trees along the top of it. So Lovely. the name sort of ties into the view that we can see while we make the cheese and also is a sort of a nod to the ash, sort yes. of, uh, you know, within the, within the cheese itself. Lovely. That's very nice. And this got a very good reception. So, and did you, the reason, is the reason you're not able to keep it four months because the demand is too high then? Is that yeah. Why? Yeah. yeah. We're, we're a sort of full <laughs> tilt um, with it at the moment. Right, right now we're making ash cooms for, for Christmas. So today we've, we've, we've had two milk collections. Um, we've made three batches of cheese, one at seven this morning, one at nine. And half of that was ashcombe for Christmas, and the rest of that was soft cheese for Gosh, sort of full, early October. Full tilt, then, isn't it? Yeah. So yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we've just and got. What was it um, like we're just doubling this, our. What was it like making this new mm. cheese? I mean, did you have a feeling, David, that you know that well, the milk you use would lend itself really nicely to this 
cheese style. Absolutely. So as part as part of the kind of the, the regenerative um, farming approach and sort of farming practice that are followed at Manor Farm, there's a lot of use of herbal lays of deep rooted herbal lays. So the pasture, the grazing is very species rich, mm. a lot of herbs and a lot of legumes, which makes for really aromatic milk, especially in these slightly longer aged cheeses, oh. you know, th- flavors that you sort of start start to be unlocked by the ripening process about three, three months in or so. Yeah. And it's actually not, not at all a dissimilar sort of um, set of herbs and legumes to what you'd find up in the foothills of the, you know, the French Comté, um, hills where the Comté and Morbier and Vacheron cows graze. And it's like a very good fit then, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, 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 we're on limestone, very thin Cotswold soils here. So even sort of, you know, the soil is, 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 is not a million miles away in terms of, you know, it's, it's sort of mineral content um, to, to that in the Jura, in the French Comte. Yeah, it just sort of seems like a good farm, a good location, a good place to make these styles of cheese, 800 foot up on top of the Cotswolds. Lovely. That's, I mean, that's a wonderful story of, isn't it brilliant that's something you made, you know, out of adversity in a way, you know, because of that, mm. the stress of the, you know, the sort of brutal realities of mm. pandemic and no hospitality. And then it's been rewarded with this, which has this, this cheese that has received these accolades at the Artisan Cheese. That must be quite yeah. a what did that What did that feel like? <laughs> it was, it was completely unexpected. And I mean, it was, it was, it was, it was joyous, you know, sort of felt a bit sort of i don't know bashful i guess when it kept because i think we when we got you won in lots of different categories five, yeah five, i think it was five <laughs> categories that with with ash cream we sort of got the you know sort of one i suppose um yes. and each time they kept on saying you know matthew um at callahan the festival the awards organizer yes. kept on saying and the winner of this category is Ashcombe. <laughs> oh my goodness, not again. <laughs> but no, it's tr- tremendous. Yeah, 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 really, really pleased. And, you know, it shows what great milk we're, what great milk we're using yeah. and the, the skill of, you know, our team in the, um, in the, in the creamery and the ripening rooms. Well, that's brilliant. Well, David, thank you. Given what a busy day you've had, I, I appreciate even more no, than not, you came and talked to us. So not not at all, Jenny. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Online, on smart speakers and on Listen Again, this is Food FM. Savour the crunch of Peter's Yard sourdough crackers. Available at Waitrose, Sainsbury's, Ocado, Amazon, petersyard.com and specialist food retailers. Very happy indeed to have with me today Tom Calver of Westcombe Dairy. Good morning, Tom. Morning, Jenny. Thank you for talking to us when I know how busy you are and all the way from your beautiful countryside. So um, (laughs) I was interested... Tom, because it seems to me that your family sort of cheese story is a really interesting mixture of heritage and innovation. And you seem to be in a very interesting space at the moment where you're actively exploring the potential of regenerative agriculture. Do you want to tell us a little bit about, you know, perhaps explain for the listener what, what is the idea of regenerative agriculture and then why are you a cheesemaker exploring it? Yeah, so, so the story of, um, of Wesker is quite an interesting one. It really kind of I feel like it reflects um, what's happened in the feed industry in the last hundred years. Uh, I mean, what what we what we're doing, you know, in 1879 is we were, we had a really small herd of cows. Um, it was the Brickle family who were producing uh, the cheese, and then um, we were helped by uh, a lady called Edith Cannon, who was a who was a very successful cheese maker. And so, on the back of that success, we started to expand. And then, if you fast forward a few years, you know, you had. World War One, um, when there was a bit of a push to um, uh, to produce uh, more, and then obviously World War Two, where there was a huge push to actually, and actually there was a, a discouragement of um, small farms and more of an encouragement on a creamery style production. So mm. the focus has been very much on um, on quantity. You know, it's yeah, and 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 if you think about it, you know, the whole rationing thing wasn't just through the through the war. It kind of ended in the fifties. So. Um, so there was a, a long period of time when the country was uh, was needing to be self-sufficient. So there was more and more pressure on us farmers to produce more. Um, and like every other farmer, we have felt that pressure and we raised that challenge. So we would look, we would be looking at efficiencies. So making round um, cheeses, uh, cloth bound, is not the most efficient way of doing things. Um, it's um, 
Uh, and so we moved to a block style commodity cheddar. We wrapped it in plastic, we stored it on pallets, we put it into a great big fridge, and, uh, and then we were to supply it into commodity uh, markets like Cathedral City and all that kind of stuff. And then mm -hmm. um, really when my father came into the business uh, 56 years ago, he was very much a passionate farmer and he just loved, loves cows. And so he got in, involved with the farming side of things. And then um, the other family um, involved with the business asked him to take over the other farms and then in the 80s take over the cheese side of the business. And um, uh, and then he kind of, uh, him and, and the other director, Christine, kind of had a bit of a step, step back, looked at the business and thought, well, you know, the, the, the market's changing quite a lot. So what are we going to do? How are we going to fit in? The, it seems like milk price is declining. How do we actually add value? So um, And cheese price was declining. So we stopped our commodity production and, uh, and then focused on traditional cheddar using just our own milk. And also we felt that actually raw milk was probably the way to go after having mm. quite a few talks with Randolph Hodgson as well from Neil's Yard Dairy. And, yes. um, and actually, um, and so the evolution of those decision makings has actually pushed our thinking into more, I suppose, viticulture kind of thought processes. So right. we're, 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 you know, we're, we're always talking about quality. How can we, you know, farmers are not very good salespeople at all. They were not good marketeers either, I don't think. Um, and so what we felt is actually if we're not, if those aren't our strengths, what can we do to actually uh, make sure that this che the cheese or whatever we do sells the best? We have to produce the best and make sure it's the best quality constantly. So we're always striving forwards for that. So with this kind of quality aspect in mind, then actually it's quite amazing how it pushes you down this like road of more of a organic regenerative uh, future I feel and um, so and there's so many other hidden benefits that we're getting from having you know quality 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 so, so, so that word regenerative Tom and that's a phrase you know that we're seeing now regenerative agriculture so the sense I get is that you know exactly as you described there was a pressure on farmers to move to more sort of industrialized large-scale way of farming but there's been this move this idea back in a way that let's look at the grass in a very different way let's look at our pasture let's increase as you said the quality is that are these things that interest you then in in that idea yeah hugely i mean we we've the years at um historic makes as well um and also looking back um uh you know at historical uh, producers and having this kind of idealism of like, oh, the, the cheese must have tasted absolutely amazing for it to be um, held on such a pedestal for such a long period of time. And I wonder what that cheese would have tasted like in the 1800s. Mm. And so, um, uh, so we do take quite a lot of um, a nod from uh, the old his um, old history. But this, the idea now, and why I'm even more excited is, it, I suppose. I would be sitting around the kitchen table with dad saying, you know, why do we have to actually produce the, um, plant these things? Why do we have to plant maize? Why do we have to do all these different um, uh, things? He's kind of been saying, well, how do you know that it tasted so good years ago? Um, <laughs> and I can't really answer that. And um, the thing about with the, the regenerative side of things is it feels like we're, we're doing a bit of a nod to an old rotational system. So it's not a new kind of thing, but we've also got a huge amount of knowledge and science behind us about trying to uh, plant, you know, um, a multi-species herbal lays, for example. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we they wouldn't have necessarily been able to to plant those um, uh, that up in the way that we are um, yeah. back um, years ago. But mm -hmm. so we're we're really looking at this. I suppose the thing that really excites me about the Regen program is that we want to repair and restore the soil and have a have a focus on the soil. So right. again, taking inspiration from viticulture, where everything starts with the soil and the microbiome of the soil, and also the um, uh, microbial diversity and not only the microbial diversity but diversity in general and how I mean that's quite a project have you got have you got a time scale you know how long does something like this take um, is, is it you know within a year you know, can you see difference within a year I don't even know how long you've been doing this for Tom when did you start you know well we started having the discussions about it I mean as I say you know if I, I came into the business 20 years ago and then the seeds were planted, uh, I suppose, um, in, in our minds about it uh, then, just mm -hmm. asking these questions of why. 
Why do we still mm -hmm. do what we do? And is it the best way of getting the best quality? Um, so I suppose um, uh, five or 10 years ago, we started to look at the idea of introducing um, uh, more variety into our uh, lays, um, our grass mm -hmm. lays. And then certainly five years ago, we really um, uh, went dipped our toe in a bit, a bit further. And then um, we've um, we've been uh, lucky. We've got um, a chap called Nick Millard, who um, uh, who's our herdsman up at um, Milton Farm, and I feel like he's a bit of an ally for me because he's uh, come from an organic background as well. He used to work mm. at um, Hafford. Um, really, since um, you know, just before he came, we were we were really pushing um, a bit further with the uh, um, herbal lays, and uh, and since he's arrived, you know, we've 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 come a long long way i think that was about can you explain ago. so herbal um, so the, the important sorry let me interrupt tom but just to explain so the the herbal lays which is that then the idea that the your again coming back to your cheese making so is the idea that the cattle are grazed as well as being good for the soil and enriching you know biodiversity is, is there a sort of practical impact in that your cattle are then grazing on on pasture that is much richer and more diverse than it used to be is that one of the ideas yeah absolutely i mean it's it's yeah, yeah for sure I, I mean if you look at uh, um, you know the general modern um dairy system um has been very focused on um italian ryegrass and maybe a bit of clover um and uh and, and not not a great deal else um and now we're planting as i say um 19 different species of not only grasses but clovers you know we've got chicory mm -hmm. we've got um all sorts of di different um things in there so you've got nitrogen fixes in the legumes you've got um, um a, a massive array of of um of of different things but the the thing is is that we extensive grazing system where the cows would only go into one field, you know, pretty much every day of the week. And um, now we've um, we've got the herbal lays. You almost have to change your grazing system as well. So we're doing what's known as uh, paddock grazing or mob grazing, where um, about 170 cows go out into about an acre of um, uh, an acre plot um, for a day, maybe two days. Um, and the beauty of that is. Um, is that they'll graze a third of that off, they'll trample mm -hmm. down a third, and then there'll be a third left um, for regrowth. Um, mm. If we were to have a herbal lay and also and, and just send the cows out there um, every day of the week, um, then they would naturally um, graze the stuff that tastes delicious. And uh, you know, yeah. a lot lot of these things are the slower growing things um, oh. are plants. So. Um, <laughs> They tend to so almost disappear really quickly. Yes. Oh, that's yeah, so interesting. Exactly. So yeah, so it's a sort of balancing act then. So it's really fascinating, isn't it? You're Absolutely. really having to change things. I mean, it sounds quite demanding in a sense that you know that you know if, if for a farmer who's, you know, presumably there was already a pattern, you know, very well established, and now you're having to really sort of freshen it up and and think things through. Is, are you? Is that stimulating or is it exhausting? Was it both those things? It's it's all of those things. It's it's uh, absolutely it's, it's it's really it's really interesting. I suppose um, one of the biggest things than anything, um, any decision you made, it's all about mindset. Um, really, um, not to sound too corporate about it, but um, when you've got the right <laughs> mindset and and you really want to change something, I think it will happen. What 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 we've got is we've got a fantastic team. You know, we've never had a better team. Um, the guys um, on the farm are awesome, and and a lot of them have been with us for a long period of time. Um, that actually comes with a bit of a challenge because um, because um, we're there's so many changes going on in such a short period of time. It's mm. it's difficult to um, navigate sometimes. Um, yeah. But I, yeah, I, I just think that for the quality of what we're doing, and also, I suppose what really excites me is the idea of variability. Um, you know, to I, I um, when I used to make cheese with Chris Duckett um, years ago, um, oh, he would tell me Chris, stories yes. of his, yeah, he would tell me stories of his mother coming into the cheese room and being able to. Um, uh, tell you which field the cows have been grazing just on the reaction of the cheese and what it smelt like and all the different um, <laughs> different things going on and um, and actually yeah. you know what a wonderful um, place to get to where we can almost have bespoke fields with specific flavor profiles um, because of the way that they're managed and the way that you know mm. really tapping into this idea of um, tiroir that 
it's very difficult to do that. Um, I mean, we talk about it quite a lot in the dairy industry. We try and borrow yes. that that word quite a lot. But yeah. um, but to be able to uh, farm in that specific way for flavour, I think, is very exciting. Have you so have you had a chance? Given your cheddars must take several months to mature. Have you had a chance to see the impact of of, of the changes you're making agriculturally? You know, on the actual cheese, are you are you getting some sort of tasting insights? <laughs> Do you know what this this is interesting? It's a question that comes up quite a lot. Um, the short answer is no. Um, and, I maybe not. And because I maybe enough time hasn't passed. Yeah. <laughs> but the trouble is with probably talking about a seven to ten year process of making any kind of changes and by the time that's up you've probably forgotten what you did in the first place but um <laughs> but it, so a, a lot of a lot of what we're doing is done on um uh, on visual uh, side of things on a daily basis making sure that the cows are well happy and also um they're you know keeping uh producing milk and also fertile and and generally um good and happy but also um with the cheese making side of things I think I think I think I, I want to say yes because we've seen a level of consistency in our kefilis coming out, which has been ah, amazing. And it's young, and I, I younger that cheese, cheese, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Well, that's what you think because it's much yeah, it's much quicker maturing, isn't it? So that you do get an insight. Oh, that is interesting. Wonderful. Yeah. So that's the ducats kefili that you're making. Yeah. How that is, so that's exciting. So you see, that's more consistent. So you're feeling that that looks promising then. For the cheddar and for what you're what you're doing. Yeah, it's a, it, I, I, yeah, it, I I think so. I I love that cheese because, as I say, it's a it's an indicator cheese for um for what the cheddar should do. So if we can make decent kefili, then then hopefully we can uh, make some half decent cheddar. Very exciting. And in fact, we should mention that actually there's a chance if anyone's interested in finding out more about what Tom and his family are doing on the farm, there's it's been covered really beautifully um with the Westcombe project with um Sam Wilkins, Solomon Sam, who's a wonderful podcaster. So, you know, it's a lots of detailed... He's, he's following you through, through a whole year, isn't he? Through a whole season. So, so that's he, he a is, sort of... It's, yeah. It's very, yeah, very exciting, actually. Sam's a wonderful um, character. And, and it's, uh, um, he, he came to us and, um, and talked about this project. And I kind of jumped at the chance. But then I've been a little bit, um, uh, I don't know, apprehensive in, at times. Obviously, you know, we're, 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 mm. we're trying to be expose absolutely everything of the decision making and the characters and and all the things that go into what we do and i think that i think that this is really important as well because generally in the food industry i think that um us producers just have to just have a huge amount of honesty and i think that that's the way that we can do it that's i mean that sort of reminds me you're you know i appreciate that it must be difficult because you know i'm sure you're going to make some mistakes everyone makes mistakes don't they and that's not lovely to have recorded but on the other hand you know the the value of sharing information especially if you're exploring if you're exploring a different way of farming then actually your chance to share that information which makes me what i was going to say was that that makes me think of randolph hodgson of Niels Yardari, who always seemed to be a great one for sharing information and for encouraging uh people you know within the the artisan cheese world to actually talk to each other and and you know give advice or or, or share their experiences that seemed quite sort of is central to the British cheese scene in a way it really is and he he was certainly an architect in that whole process for sure and and um and he i mean he he is he's he's a, a fantastic character he um uh what i i think and i've been inspired by um with randolph is he 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 manages to cut through um, in a in a in a room of people. He cuts through to the absolute importance. You know, it can be just everybody can be in a room uh, discussing all the merits of this this that and the other, and then he and then he comes out with if you if you're in a crowd of crowded room um, of mm-hmm. people and they'd be going on about the merits of this or that, and uh, he would just come out with the simplest thing. He like you know, has anybody considered that if it tastes any good? Which I think is fascinating, you know. Like sometimes, a lot, a lot of the time, people really don't really consider that um, when they're producing food. Yeah, he's very yes. He has quite very sort of rooted approach to everything and very practical. Yeah, brilliant. Oh, well, listen, Tom. Indeed. You know, this is very exciting that you're doing this, and you sound it sounds very rewarding. I mean, you sound very excited by what you're doing, which is, they say, great. And it's brilliant that you're 
you know, that the, the team are, are with you. So, we, so yeah, so thank you for taking the, the time to come and, and talk to us about it today. That's lovely. No Take problem. care then, Tom. Take care. Bye. Thank you. To find out more about Food FM and our content, go to foodfmradio.com. Thank you so much for listening to A Slice of Cheese. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have enjoyed it, it would be lovely if you could rate us on wherever you've found this podcast. It will make such a difference to us. So I hope you'll enjoy us again. Thank you very much.